So we've already been in this uh, for several weeks now. And uh, now we come kind of to the central story in the book of Exodus being uh, the leaving of Egypt itself. So uh, we're going to be looking, as you can see on the screen there, at chapter 13, verse 17 through chapter 15, verse 21. Chapter 15 is a song that is sung as a celebration of their uh, departure from Egypt. So it's not new material. It's kind of a poetic reenactment of what happened. But the new material that we're going to look at tonight begins with the crossing of the sea. And so I just want to introduce to you this section in terms of what, uh, what is coming next. So actually, tonight, we're finishing this section here on the departure. And we're completing part one of Israel in Egypt. So next week, what we're going to do is begin looking at their stationary position at Mount Sinai, where they're going to receive the law and uh, the instructions to build the tabernacle. So having said that, uh, we're going to get into this introduction uh, for our section tonight. So the Israelites are going to leave Egypt, but one of the things that we're going to find in this section is Pharaoh's heart is still mm -hmm. hard, and that will then ultimately lead him to chase after the Israelites after they leave. Uh, this will ultimately end in disaster. Uh, the text will tell us that the Egyptian army will drown. We're told in the text, and I'm using the New International Version, here about crossing the Red Sea, but you'll notice as we go on in the slides that I have for you to follow is that a better translation is called the Sea of Reeds. And there's uh, why it's translated Red Sea is interesting in the NIV. So uh, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, all of this then is celebrated by the people after they are delivered with a poetic expression, which might just be one of the oldest sections of the Old Testament. It seems as though this song is even older than the narrative itself. And so what we find is this part is a reflection of the celebration that took place upon their deliverance. So. Uh, do you have any thoughts or questions before we get into the uh, details of the text? Anything? If not, we'll forge ahead. So we're going to talk about the key moment, really, not only in the book of Exodus, but in many ways, the entire Old Testament. Uh, it seems as though many sections of the Old Testament keep looking back upon this event when the Israelites are freed from bondage and they uh, are entrapped, once they get to a body of water, uh, they will find that they are delivered when this body of water is divided in two, and Pharaoh and his army uh, are pursuing them while they are uh, crossing on dry ground. As they do so, the water uh, enfolds back in on uh, the Egyptian army. What's fascinating here is, again, the idea of Pharaoh hardening his heart. It's something that we played with the last several chapters. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh's hardening his own heart, which is kind of that mysterious interplay that is taking place in the text. What we're going to find, though, is ultimately this key moment is a punishment. And more than anything else, it is a, a way of uh, giving account for that genocide of the Hebrew male infants uh, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 22, as well as um, Israel being enslaved. Now, what's fascinating in chapter 4, and I think we it's easy to forget these details, but in chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, the language is, is quite interesting. It says, 
in verse 22, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So God is um, referring to the nation as his firstborn, and thus the 10th plague, the, uh, the killing of the firstborn, is kind of an eye for an eye mentality that you have in the 10th plague for what has happened, not only with the genocide back in chapter one of the uh, uh, baby boy Israelites, but also uh, that Israel as a nation is God's firstborn son. And therefore, that's why this link to the firstborn in the 10th plague is so important. Any thoughts there? Do you have any comments? Now, here's what's interesting. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at verse 17 and 18 of chapter 13. So as they come to this point of crossing the sea, uh, it says in these two verses, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. So here is something that isn't to be missed. It's very important here. Uh, Moses has been saying all along, let my people go, let my people go. But there is this moment when it's time to leave. And God leads them in a roundabout way. And I want to show you the map here. Um, you'll notice as they leave, the shorter way up into the promised land is along the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, here on this map, it is called the Way of the Philistines. The Egyptians called this road the Way of Horus. That's one of their gods. But here it's called the way of the Philistines. And that would be the normal way to go along the coast up into the promised land of Canaan. But God is going to turn them to follow a southern route. And we are told um, that they are going to, uh, in verse 20, if you look in chapter 13, they go to this city, Succoth, first. And then they encamp at Etham. So these two points are mentioned here in the text, which suggests that they took this southern route. We already talked several times about whether the traditional site of Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula is the correct historical spot, or if it's over here, Horeb in Midian. So just kind of keep that map in the back of your mind. I'm going to go back to this slide. So what's odd about this whole thing is the, the contrast in verse 17 and 18. In verse 17, God leads them that route because he says if they face war, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. But in verse 18, it says they're armed for battle. And there's a little bit of a disconnect there. One of the reasons that they would be afraid to go up along the Mediterranean Sea is, number one, they would leave Egypt unarmed. I mean, unless they somehow stole some of the Egyptians' weapons, um, and you could understand why they would be fearful. And yet in verse 18, it says they are armed for battle. So what's taking place here, it seems, is there's two different traditions about how they left Egypt that's being combined into one text. So we've talked a lot about uh, these different traditions that uh, have been re-edited back into the Exodus narrative. <clears throat> Here's one good example of that. How do you reconcile their fear and probably not being armed versus they're ready for battle? 
and they are armed for battle. So a lot of scholars suggest that what's going on here is there is this uh, two tradition remembrance of this event and, and it's combined in the same text here. Now, why would they be fearful after the 10 plagues, which is an interesting angle. Uh, they've just watched the 10 plagues unfold against the Egyptian gods. Um, and they're going to see that God is going to come and, um, and take them into the promised land. So why are they afraid? So there is this theory that this way of the Philistines uh, is a what is called an acronism uh, that it's reflecting back with a later name for an earlier road. In other words, the way of the Philistines, let me go back to the text, uh, the map here, is reflecting a later name for this road that goes up this way. And what we find is this idea of the Philistines being a, a, a formidable foe that would instill fear in them is fitting back into Exodus a fear that is legitimate when the Philistines actually take this territory here and they have weapons. So you'll remember when we did a study in First and Second Samuel. Um, this is a long time ago, but when we did that study, we talked about how in David's time Israel had only one sword. Do you remember that? And because they didn't have weapons, they were fearful of this larger army of the Philistines. Now, what's happening is this name of this road along the Mediterranean Sea is reflective of a later man who lived at a later time that has all the history of the Philistines as part of the experience that is kind of superimposed back upon the Exodus text. So in other words, it's almost impossible, and this is in this next slide here, the land of the Philistines is an a, a, anachronism because it reflects a later date. The Philistines were not in power at the time that the Israelites left Egypt. That's the simplest way to put it. This territory there, the Philistines are not in power at that point. Now, there are other, other peoples that obviously reside in this area. But what's being ha what's happening, and this will confuse a lot of people once it, you kind of look at it, is a later editor is taking the fear of the Philistines and kind of superimposing it upon the text. Now, why would they do that? Well, it might be an explanation of why the Israelites wandered in the wilderness as long as they did. It could possibly be that the Philistines are not even a powerful opponent along the Mediterranean Sea, but God himself is the one that kind of redirects them back to a place where the Israelite army is drowned um, in this miraculous intervention. So it's almost like a setup, if you will, by God to turn them in a different direction than the most direct route so that he could perform this miracle of taking out the Egyptian army. Okay, so that might be confusing the way I explained it. Do you have some questions? I might be able to come at it from a different angle if, if, uh, if you have an ex, uh, a question or so. Okay, so I went back to this, don't miss this slide, because the last point is pretty interesting, or even before that. 
in chapter 13, verse 18, they are armed for battle. When you get to chapter 17, they actually engage only a couple months later in battle with the Amalekites. And you can read about that battle that Joshua led in chapter 17, verse 8 through 16 of Exodus. We'll get there in our study. But um, the question that we might ask is, how did the Israelites get armed with weapons in the first place? Um, do we think that the Egyptians just gave them theirs? It doesn't seem so. Um, when we read into chapter 14 of Exodus, there's a big deal that is made about all the chariots of Pharaoh and his army. Um, in fact, in chapter 14, verse 7, there's like 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other uh, chariots of Egypt, with all these officers that are chasing them down. So there's a there's some mystery here. How did how were they armed? Uh, how did they fight the Amalekites that we see a little bit later? So what scholars suggest is all of these things are taking different traditions about the Exodus story and interweaving them. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's not just how one person remembers it, it's how different traditions, remember J-E-P-D I mentioned last week, these different traditions approach this uh, topic in different ways and, and they represent it in different ways. The final editor of Exodus chose to keep the different versions rather than smooth them out which shows the honesty of the editors to keep both. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. All right, so let's come back to this slide. So what's going on here is we find they're leaving Egypt and then there is this little notation in verse 19, which is interesting. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. So this is referring back to uh, Genesis chapter 50 when Joseph dies and he makes his family swear that they will take his bones with him. Uh, with them when they get out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we find is this act of taking the bones of Joseph out of Egypt is not only a fulfillment to the promise they made to their father, but it is also reflective of a bigger story. Now, what I mean by that is, if you want to keep your finger here, go to back to Genesis 15, and this goes all the way back to Abraham. And what's fascinating here is Abraham chapter 15, verse uh, 12 through 14. It says, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Uh, and um, is that what it was? Yeah. Uh, then the Lord said, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. All the way back to Abraham, there's this anticipation of slavery in Egypt. So it seems as though this bigger story has been one of anticipation uh, since the days of Abraham that the people of Israel will be delivered out of this land that has held them captive. So it's not just the story of the Exodus in the moment. It's the story that goes all the way back to Abraham and to Joseph as well. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Then back in chapter 13 of Exodus, the next thing that we're told is interesting. So we already mentioned about them leaving 
and then going to Sukkoth, and then eventually to eat them here. Then after that, what's interesting is in verse 21, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to guide them, to give them light so that they could travel day and night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So God's presence found in these pillars is leading the way out of the old land into the new land. But it's reflective of the story back in Genesis. So in this same passage in Genesis 15, where Abraham uh, is told that the people are going to be enslaved for all these years, and then they're going to be delivered out, there's this strange ceremony, this ceremony of, a, of what's called cutting a covenant. So if we were to go back to Genesis 15, we will see that God told Abraham to take these animals and cut them in half. And when they place, when he places the carcasses uh, on, uh, on two sides, it leaves a middle path, this middle path uh, that he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. He passes through the, the halves of these animals and he's represented as a fire and smoke that passes through these two halves. This Exodus story is reminiscent of the covenant that uh, goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. So it's this ongoing story that God is uh, going to intervene on behalf of his people. He's making a promise and he's going to show the way out. He's going to show the way out in the same way that he made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. Does that make sense to everybody? Mm -hmm. that, now that's pretty exciting, isn't it? God is keeping his promise. He is told and foretold that there's going to be hardship, but he's going to lead them out. And as he leads them out, uh, they are to follow him by day and by night. Any questions, comments? Okay, now we come to a strange part here. When you get to chapter 14, what happens is there is this, um, this act that takes place uh, that, that you wonder why God tells them to do what they're to do. And then the people get full of, uh, bitterness, and they turn on Moses. So in chapter 14, take a look at verse 1 here. Chapter 14, verse 1. It's here that it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pir Herath, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. And then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. So let's go back to this map for a second. So I don't think this particular map has those names um, on it that are mentioned in chapter 14, verse 1. But it's curious that God is changing their direction. So it could possibly be that if you listen to verse one again, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near uh, Pi Harath between Migdal and the sea. Now you might look at uh, a map at the back of your Bible and it might have those names there. But maybe they were going to start to go up that way. God turns them back to follow a different path. And we're told that maybe one of the things that God is doing here is 
he's kind of pulling Pharaoh out. Um, it's almost he's almost enticing Pharaoh to follow because Pharaoh, as he obviously has reconnaissance going on, he sees that the they turn back, and he thinks that the Israelites are confused and that they're wandering, and so he figures. Well, if they're confused and wandering, I'm going to chase after them and bring my workforce back. So at this point, we're going to find that the people will become afraid uh, of Pharaoh, and there's good reason for it. So in chapter 14, what we're told in verse 4, again, here's this phrase, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But then you're going to notice something. You're going to notice a phrase that is mentioned several times in this chapter. It says, I will gain glory for myself. It's repeated several times. It's right here in verse 4. It's all the way down in verse 17 and verse 18. It's a repetition that maybe one of the reasons God told them to turn is that's the way I'm going to gain glory for myself. So God is speaking and he's saying, this is going to be the greatest way of showing my glory of getting these Israelites out of this cul-de-sac of fear and death that they, that I have led them into. So the people, as they see this happening, are going to accuse Moses of, of, of leading them out to death. And there's a reason for that. So look at verse 5 all the way down to verse 9. It says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go. We've lost their services. Now listen to the description. So he had a chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near uh, Pi Haroth, opposite Baal Zephon. So <laughs> that now they're situated, and if we go back to the map again, perhaps what is happening here, oh, there, there is the name here, down here. I just noticed that. Baal Zephon, here you see it. So they went to Ethium. They are turning back. They go down to Bales upon. So now they are entrapped here in this um, Sinai Peninsula. And this is uh, uh, called the Red Sea. But you'll notice on your handout there, uh, chapter 13, verse 18. I already mentioned this, but here's what I want to point out to you. Says so, so God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. Now, if you have a study Bible, there should be a little notation on that verse that says that the Hebrew word here is Yam Suf, and that means the Sea of Reeds. So the Red Sea is a little bit of a misnomer, although this map is reflecting that name, the Red Sea. But the Sea of Reeds could be any body of water, any marshy type of water. And so it could possibly be this one to the east over here. One of the things that we often think of is, let's say the Ten Commandments. Bud and Shelly aren't with us tonight, but I'm sure Bud would remember this scene in the Ten Commandments, um, you know, where they cross this big sea here, um, and uh, it, it was believed maybe the northern tip. It seems as though the text is suggesting they are entrapped down here, which suggests that where they might cross is actually into this spot here at Horeb, rather than down 
in the Sinai Peninsula here. Mm -hmm. So Baal Zephon, this place, is the place where we're going to find that Moses gets an earful. And what he's going to get an earful is the fear of the people. So in chapter 14, look at verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified and cried out. You can imagine if there was that many chariots, mm -hmm. an army that was in pursuit, they thought they were <laughs> going to die. They are stuck. And, and here we're told in verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us up to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So they would prefer slavery in Egypt than the risk of freedom by uh, fighting for their freedom. So they want to turn back. And Moses uh, hears this complaining. But Moses also says in verse 13, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Uh, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you need only to be still. So he makes this promise trying to calm down the Israelites. But the reaction of God in verse 15 is really fascinating. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. It's almost as if God is kind of reprimanding uh, Moses uh, in a way. Um, he's not the one that's doing the complaining, obviously, but um, it's almost <clears throat> as if God is chastising Moses. I wonder if there's, as you can see here on the, the slide, is there a scene that is left out? Did Moses start complaining to God at this point too? Or was it just the people? And it seems as though God is kind of uh, correcting Moses when he says, why are you crying out to me? It's almost as if Moses is complaining as well. Do, do you read it that way too? Uh, so it's the people at first and then possibly Moses and then this staff comes into play that we saw back at the beginning of the plagues, where he is to raise the staff up, and we're going to see God divide the waters. Any comments or questions there? So we already talked about the Red Sea here. Um, I don't know if you have a Bible, but uh, a study Bible, but a good study Bible will show you that for whatever reason, the translators of the New International Version chose Red Sea instead of the Sea of Reeds, because if they take that other route uh, up, up uh, on the northern part across that body of water and down into the Sinai Peninsula, uh, where Moses leads the, uh, receives the law, then you can, you, I, I, that's, I, can, I guess, that's one of the reasons you can translate it that way. However, uh, the word suf in uh, Hebrew means red. So it's a little bit misleading by calling it the, uh, the Red Sea. It's, it's better uh, called the Sea of Reeds. Does that make sense to everybody? Which could be any body of water, really. But Okay. All right. So now there's something else that's going on here, and we have to notice the details of it to pick up on it. So we're told in verse 15, uh, why are you crying out to me? And then he says, raise up your staff, verse 16, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And here's that phrase I told you to look for. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord and I will gain glory. 
when I gain glory. So this seems to be the primary reason why um, God turns them back to follow a different direction so that God's greatness would be on display as he provides this miracle. Okay. Now, here's an, here's an interesting thing. When you get down to verse 21, it says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. So he's going to raise the staff. And all that night, the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. Okay. So the first thing we notice is this strong east wind is going to push back. Now, the word that is used here for wind is ruach, which usually is translated spirit. So in Genesis, God's ruach is hovering over the waters in the creation week in Genesis chapter one. So what's taking place here is this divine wind or spirit of God is going to drive back the sea. And then we're told the waters were divided. So if it's simply an east wind, it's going to push all the water in one direction. But the next phrase is the waters were divided. So maybe this is a, the way to really look at this is that spirit of God that provided the creation, the spirit hovering over the, the waters in Genesis 1 is the same spirit that produces this miracle. This same Ruach, this same spirit divides the Sea of Reeds and hovers over it as they cross and then allows it to come back in on the Egyptians. So here is this idea of creation and recreation. So what happens not only here, but also in Genesis 6, God releases the water and it destroys mankind, except Noah and his family. And then he dries out the land so that they can exit from the ark. There's a lot of imagery that is related back to Genesis here. So what's taking place, I think, here is a mini replay of creation. In Exodus, the hostile waters are split, allowing dry land to appear. What we find is it is reflected in the flood story as well. In both these stories from Genesis, when water is tamed, it yields life. When it is released, it brings death. And there is that same point that Peter makes in his writings in First Peter and Second Peter. He's using the same idea. So throughout the, uh, the Bible, at least the Old Testament, water can either bring life or death. And it depends on which side you're on that you find that God uses this water to bring life in the creation week or to bring death, as in the flood story. And it, those two ideas are brought to this moment in this story here in Exodus. That makes sense? So having said that, salvation not just the saving of our souls to go to heaven after we die, but salvation in a bigger perspective is the ability to bring order out of chaos. It's the ability to bring life out of death. It's the ability to bring order uh, back to the world. And so that idea of creation, salvation is like creation happening over again on, in a smaller scale where God is using all his powers to, to put forth that which will lead to life. And that's what he does for the Israelites 
He allows them to pass through. And the waters, though, bring judgment upon the Egyptians. And um, so water is a source of life. Um, and we'll find this later when they're wandering in the wilderness. Moses will need to strike a rock to provide water uh, so that they can drink and so that they can live. So this is a really dynamic theme that you see in the Old Testament. And a lot of the fear of the Israelites was fear of the ocean. And so in the Psalms, you have uh, what they believed were creatures that dominated the seas, like Leviathan uh, and the behemoth and that type of thing. So you can look for it uh, as you read the Old Testament. This is a theme that is used quite often. But God enter, enters into the, these moments when we feel like we are drowning and he brings us back to life. That's probably the bigger picture that is carried into the New Testament when you look at a couple of the references of uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. So you can read that on your own um, if you have the time. So any questions there? I'm, I'm just telling you to kind of look for these themes as they appear in this key moment in the nation of Israel. Any thoughts there? So the rest of chapter 14 tells us what happens. Um, if you come to verse 26, the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and the chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretches out his hand over the sea at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back, covered the chariots and horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Now that's interesting, because if this is Pharaoh's whole army, if not one of them survived, Egypt is defenseless at this point which means some of the other <clears throat> empires or dominant forces could have conquered them. Um, but the text doesn't go that way. The text then goes, uh, uh, tells us about this miracle. Verse 29, the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a, wad, a wall of water on the right and on the left. The day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So the, they drowned, and then these bodies are washed ashore, the text is telling us. And when the people see that, they believe in God, they believe in Moses and Aaron and uh, their leadership. So that is a source of celebration. And that's what comes next in chapter 15, is this source of celebration is reflected in this poem. And that says in chapter 15, verse one, Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Now, this is poetic, but what's important in this poem, I think, is what they emphasize. So it says here, the horse and the rider, uh, verse one, is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song has become my salvation. But when you get down to verse three, here's their understanding of God. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Um, so this image is the dominant descriptor of God at this moment in time is God is a warrior. Now, this song is sung by Moses and the Israelites. When you go down uh, later in the chapter uh, and you come down to verse 21, there is a second song that is sung by Miriam, the sister of Aaron, but that's quite short. So we don't know exactly 
who wrote this poem is this it seems as though most scholars believe that the poem is actually older than the narrative so what scholars will suggest is that the song and the narrative versions are kind of out of sync with each other so if you read through this what you find is there is in this poetic description um, this, this idea of God as a warrior coming to the aid of his people. Uh, and yet, at the same time, if you don't notice verse 14 in, the, in chapter 15, it says, the nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. Remember what we said earlier about the Philistines. They really don't show up on, uh, on the scene until a little bit later, historically. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling and the people of Canaan will melt away. So scholars are, are saying, okay, the, the poem seems to be quite old, but are there parts of it that are added to later that reflect the time and date of the the editors does that make sense so we don't think about these things when we just kind of read through the text we just take it at face value and that's fine that's great but there's a lot to it and that's why scholars way beyond my ability uh, to that look at all of this stuff and go okay this doesn't add up to this what's going on here uh, are there different traditions that are being merged here so um what i want to do you can read that poem yourself is i want to for you to think uh as you think of this poem is is to think about god as a warrior being the dominant image that you find in the Old Testament. So in the next slide I have here, it says, part of the ancient memory is the depiction of God as a fierce, violent warrior. And uh, he is be, to be praised for killing a lot of people, okay? Uh, remember, it goes back to that phrase I told you to keep, uh, keep note of in chapter 14, I will gain glory for myself. Is the best way of God gaining glory for himself actually through this image of him being a warrior and killing a lot of people? Well, this is important to note right here. <clears throat> Over the centuries later, as the Old Testament continues, you have other metaphors that are starting to enter the Old Testament, much less violent metaphors where God is referring to himself as a gardener, a planter, a potter. Uh, of course, a lawgiver is in there as well. So there seems to be a movement in the Old Testament, and we see kind of the image of what God is like evolving from being very violent to moving toward nonviolence. And um, this might help us understand why by the time you get to the New Testament, there is a much different portrait of God that even Jesus himself says that he calls God my Abba Father, my Abba Father. So what's happening here, it seems, is that in the Old Testament, the very acts of violence that deliver the people become, uh, they become, um, I don't want to put this, they become a, a violation of what God really wants later when he, through Jesus says, um, turn the other cheek, uh, walk the extra mile, love your enemies, that type of thing. There's just this movement so that brings me to this, and here's where I'd like to close tonight. What you have is a quick 
if this is just a quick word. This is a heavy topic that we could take a lot of time on. There's almost kind of early in the Old Testament a vision of God that is more reflective of their times than what God is really like. In other words, the language about God in this passage here um, tells us little about what God is really like because that's how all ancient cultures depicted their gods, as powerful and violent and warring on behalf of them against their enemies. So when you hear people many times say, I can't believe in God. Why does God kill all the Canaanites? Why does God kill all these people? Why is God so violent? Why is God so hateful? The best way to think about this is it's reflecting the mentality of the people of that day. That's the way they looked at all their gods. As culture continues to develop, as time continues to move, they begin to get a better understanding of a balanced nature of what God is like. You don't see that this early in the text. So by the time you get to the New Testament, you have a much less tribalistic God than you do early in the Old Testament. So here's a point that's kind of interesting. Um, this is the religious language of a tribalistic Iron Age society. So what is the Iron Age, just by way of reminder? The Iron Age is a conventional term that archaeologists used for the period beginning around 1200 B.C., when iron supplanted bronze as the go-to metal for uh, war instruments and uh, weapons. That lasted until about 539 BC. So in that age, there is this image of God, and that's what the Israelites are carrying with them as they move toward the land of Canaan. So you see at the last point there, the Iron Age is the period spanning Israel's entry into the land of Canaan, until they return from the Babylonian exile. So um, this, this text is more than just a Sunday school story. It is something that dives deep into certain elements of theology. Uh, it dives deep into what has already come before in the book of Genesis. And it is something that... Uh, the Old Testament will move away from the farther you get into it. There is a much different portrait of God that is developing late in later years. Does that help a little bit? So do you got another uh, 10 minutes? Yeah. So what I want to do is I want to show you just a 10 minute uh, thing there is a technical term called a mnemo uh, uh, narrative. And here's what it is. It's a connection between what one person, or not one person, what people already know versus what they're trying to learn. And the idea is Israel as a people will need to learn more about God as time moves along. So let's watch this. It's a lecture from a rabbi that I think will be helpful in us kind of understanding what's going on that begins in this section so of the Old Testament. Our next lecture is Professor Aaron Mayer from Bar-Ilan University, who's the director of the Tel El-Safi Gat Excavations uh, in Israel. And Aaron is uh, currently our guest uh, here at UC San Diego. He's a distinguished visiting professor for Judaic studies, teaching uh, biblical archeology span at the undergraduate and graduate level. And uh, could we have his slides up please? And you can come on up, Aaron. Um, Aaron's going to address the question, can archeological correlates of the Nemo narratives uh, of Exodus be found? Thank you. So that's a pretty heavy um, topic, but listen, it'll, it'll make some sense. Um, first of all, I'd like to say that in my um, the 
the title has nothing to do with Nemo the fish. Um, <laughs> now, uh, the other thing is that um, I was about to give the first uh, talk I'd given in about a decade without PowerPoint presentation. And last night I started getting um, withdrawal symptoms. So I quickly put something together. Uh, <laughs> I'm overjoyed and honored to participate in this fascinating meeting and benefit from the captaining discussions. In my presentation, I will try to raise several points connected to the Exodus from an archeological perspective, my expertise, and also tap into the study of memory from other theoretical perspectives. As I'm speaking after quite a few papers, I apologize if some of the ground that I'm about to cover has already been discussed. Thank you, going. Well, I don't know what happened there. So, our next lecture is Professor Aaron Mayer from. We're going to have to skip it. Uh, it got stuck. It's not continuing. Sorry about that. So um, his idea is that archaeology has shown this idea of a progression as, as time goes along of changing perspectives uh, about God and how they take the narrative that has been repeated for generations and their own uh their own ideas as well that they are trying to learn through continued understanding of the Torah and all this type of thing and how it advances them forward. That's kind of the essence that archaeology helps to see this development as well. So anyways, all right. You have any questions, any thoughts that you'd like to finish up tonight with? We used to sing that um, fifth chapter 15 back in the 80s when we I went to the Friends Church. There was a song based on that. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Do you remember what is the name of the song? We could, we could possibly look it up online. I don't know, but it was, it was based on that. And it was, you know, the Lord... God is exalted, um, the horse and riders thrown into the sea mm -hmm. and stuff. It was like a praise song, but it was like. Did it actually take text out of uh, chapter 15, the poem? Did yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. The Lord is oh. my strength and my song. Uh-huh. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. And they talk about the horse and riders thrown into the sea and uh -huh. stuff. I have to look it up and see what, what it is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who wrote it or what, but it was. Uh -huh. Well, there's a lot of scriptures that are the inspiration of a lot of different songs that we use. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Any other thoughts or questions? I hope I didn't leave you too confused tonight, but it, you know, it it's an interesting development in this section here uh, about all of the the angles uh, that we've been talking about since the beginning of Exodus, but also is tied back to Genesis as well. Okay, well, we'll uh, we'll stop there. And uh, then we'll get into uh, next week um, when they're actually moving into the wilderness area. We're going to again um, see the, uh, the complaining come back up again. Uh, so we've seen a bit of it here tonight, but it's a, it is something that's going to uh, show itself again in the next couple of chapters. So that's where we'll land next Wednesday night, okay? All right. Well, I hope you have a good rest of the week, and uh, we'll okay. see you Sunday, okay? And hey, Brenda, we had a good Monday. Yep.
because the Browns won. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, something to celebrate. <laughs> there you go. I was shocked. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's like the old Browns. I'm like, yeah, you finally got your game on. <laughs> Very good. All right. We'll leave on a positive note. Well, How's that sound? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.